Hello once again, friends, and welcome to another podcast from the heart of Spurgeon. My name is Jeremy Walker. I'm your host, and you can follow the reading scheme on Twitter at Reading Spurgeon or sign up for a weekly newsletter from mediagratii.org slash podcasts where you can find from the heart of Spurgeon, uh, which is distributed by our friends there at Media Gratii. Each week we read through the sermons of Charles Haddon Spurgeon, published in many volumes. Uh, We read a sermon a day, and this week it's sermons 472 to 478, and we feature a particular sermon, which is the topic of the podcast, trying to give you a representative sample of Spurgeon's ministry. This week it's 475. The title is simply Self-Delusion. The text, Luke 13, 24. Many, I say unto you, will seek to enter in and shall not be able. Now, in reading this sermon, I actually wonder if there's some particular occasion that has prompted Spurgeon to speak in this way. Perhaps some particular disappointment within the congregation or some challenge outside of it. But he says, every man who is wise in the kingdom of heaven will do the same by himself as the merchant who takes stock. That is... He will cry, search me, O God, and try me. He will frequently set apart special seasons for self-examination to discover whether things be right between God and his soul. Now, as a pastor and a preacher, Spurgeon immediately then goes on to say that he is called to be the mouth for God to the people. And so he and others who are like him feel ourselves impelled to stir you up in his name to make diligent search, for we would not have you come short of the promised rest. Now notice that uh, tone, that intent. We would not have you come short of the promised rest. Now John Owen somewhere says that when he preaches, he has two particular challenges. One is that when he uh, preaches to uh, comfort the the, the, the fearful, the, the trembling, that he ends up just confirming the thoughtless and the carnal. And when he preaches to shake and to trouble the thoughtless and the carnal, then he ends up overwhelming and distressing the meek and the trembling. Now, Spurgeon feels the same tension. He says in his introduction, I shall not this morning aim to introduce doubts and fears into your minds, nay, verily or truly, but I shall hope the rather that the rough wind of self-examination may help to drive them away. It is not security, but carnal security, fleshly security, which we would kill. Not confidence, but fleshly confidence, which we would overthrow. Not peace, but false peace, which we would destroy. So, For those who might think, well, self-examination is just morbid introspection, here's a healthy perspective. Self-examination is designed to tell you the truth about yourself. It is not intended to bring you into a constant state of self-doubt and uncertainty, but to clear the matter so that you can be confident. If you have no grounds... For confidence, self-examination should take away everything that is false. If you are a child of God, self-examination should establish you in security, confidence and peace through Jesus Christ. 
the Lord Jesus speaks directly to the disciples. That's Spurgeon's emphasis as he begins here, that you, ye, yourselves, 12 times in a few verses, the personal pronoun comes. And so he speaks to the professed followers of Jesus. Everyone who thinks they are a Christian needs to listen to what follows. Now, let me just uh, say a brief word about that uh, vocabulary of professed followers. Spurgeon addresses professors over and over again in this sermon. Now, by professors, he does not mean academic instructors at university level or whatever your definition may be. What he's talking about are people who profess to be believers in Jesus Christ, the professors, those who make a profession. And he's asking, are you truly a Christian? You profess to follow Jesus. Are you really one of his? And so in this sermon that is heavy with warning, heavy in uh, unpacking our souls, he, he wants us to come face to face with the question, am I truly a Christian? That we may not be self-deluded, but rather know what is the truth about ourselves. So his first remark is this, many professors are deceived. Let me just pause here to say, by the way, that if this sermon and studying it does really trouble you, there's another sermon later on this week, Never, 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 Never is its title. And you do well to look into that because it has some particular encouragements that in some ways act as a good counterpoint to this sermon. The danger, though, is that we might say, I don't like this kind of sermon. I don't want to face this. I'd rather think about other things. I'd rather go to my happy place. But actually, we need to work through these questions if we are to be secure and happy saints. So then, this first remark, many professors, many who say that they are Christians, are deceived. And the language is clear from Christ here and in other places. So, for instance, ten virgins which took their lamps, five wise and five foolish. Or when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, he shall sit upon the throne of his glory, before him shall be gathered all nations, and he shall separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. So uh, Spurgeon is uh, doing this over and over in this sermon. He's drawing on the language of the parables to enforce the things that he's saying. His text is really a, a launching point, a, a a starting point so that he can deal with this topic. It's more of a thematic treatment. And he says that these aren't the only parables. He could go over and over different portions of Scripture. In Malachi, Christ is compared to a refiner where he works out what is worthless and it burns away, but he also purifies what is clean. Or a, a farmer who winnows his corn, his fan is in his hand, he thoroughly purges his floor. And now, not just inferences, not just images, not just suggestions, the Holy Scripture gives us facts. Among the apostles, there was a Judas who was deceiving himself and being deceived. If that's the case, says Spurgeon, don't we need to take care? What about Ananias and Sapphira, who lied to the Holy Ghost? What about Simon Magus, who uh, 
in Samaria seemed to respond to the truth and then gave every appearance of having turned away, or Demas, who forsook the Apostle Paul, or uh, Phygelus and Hermogenes, who uh, they also uh, turned back, Hymenaeus and Alexander, Philetus is mentioned, whose word eats like a cancer. There are so many churches and individuals through the scriptures. He says it feels like a mass of hypocrisy and deception and that in the most favourable age of the church's history. And we therefore think ourselves far from an uncharitable judgment when we expect to find in the church of today many that are deceived. Now, Again, I think I said this last time, how many of us often think, oh, if only we had a pastor like Spurgeon. And you read a sermon like this and you think, really? Would you respond well to this? Let's be careful that we don't just imagine that, that Spurgeon's some kind of Victorian genial pulpiteer who's um, always got a, a, a smile on his face and a, and a cheery word and never preaches anything but... Uh, an uplifting and a, a wonderful and a, uh, an encouraging sermon. No, this man is a faithful pastor and he knows how to deal closely with souls. Now, says Spurgeon, and this is where it perhaps comes close to us too, he says we don't just need this, we don't need the scriptures alone for this. We know it to our cost. Every now and then a cedar falls in our midst. We've seen our leaders turn their backs in the day of battle. We've seen our teachers fail to sustain their own character. We've had the painful conviction that there are others who are not yet discovered, whose sins do not go beforehand into judgment but follow after, who are nevertheless tainted at the core. There are covetous professors who are as grasping and grinding as if they never professed to be Christians. There are time-serving Christians who hold the world and Christ too, but they cannot serve two masters. There are many secret sinners among Christians who have their petty vices which come not under human observation and who, because they're thought to be good, write themselves down among the godly. But we know there's nothing covered that shall not be revealed. And, and again... Anybody who's been a Christian for any length of time, who's got any sense of what goes on in the wider Christian world, we've seen men who are considered trustworthy falling from their place. We've seen them turning their back upon the gospel. We've seen them falling into sin and seeming to do so without repentance. And we've thought, Lord, spare me that. Don't let that be me. We've seen Christians in our own congregations who've seemed to walk well for sometimes even years and yet at the end it's been clear that there's been some wickedness in their soul that was never conquered, some pattern of life that reveals that they never truly were Jesus Christ's. Legal professors, he speaks of, who trust to their own works. There are many who are not so inconsistent that we could put our finger upon any open sin sufficient to deserve excommunication, but who are still guilty of enormous spiritual wickedness. You couldn't point at them and say, look, they're a, they're a scandalous adulterer, they're a, a gross public drunkard, they're a, a manifestly violent and angry person. Ah, but he says, they're dead, they bring forth no fruit. Their hearts are hard as a millstone with regard to the conversion of sinners. They have not the faith of God's elect. They do not live by faith. They have not the spirit of Christ, and therefore they are none of his. Oh, my brothers, he concludes this first point, I conjure you, that is, I, I'm pleading with you, I'm urging you, 
by the precious blood of Christ, which was not shed to make you hypocrites, but shed that a sincere people might show forth God's praise. I beseech you, search and look, lest at the last it be said of you, Mene, Mene, Tekel, as words from Daniel, you are weighed in the balances and found wanting. So point one is in your face. Many professors are deceived. And he's used the parables, he's used the examples, and he's used human experience to press into our consciousness that what he says is so. And already we feel the shaking. His second point, it is not surprising that there are false professors. Why is that? He has three particular points. That there is an imitation of the externals of godliness, the outward appearance of godliness, which it is not easy to detect. The vital mysteries of godliness, he says, are mysterious. The inner life cannot be perceived by the carnal eye, and the outer life of the godly seems to most men to be but, but morality carried out with care. And hence it becomes a very simple task for a man to make himself look just like a Christian so as to deceive the very elect. So he says most people just think that Christianity is being reasonably nice and reasonably good. And they think, well, I can do that. It's morality carried out with care. And the external performances of godliness may seem little different from the external performances of a mere legal morality. A line of distinction, says Spurgeon, so fine that an eagle's eye hasn't seen it, and only God himself and the soul enlightened with his spirit can tell whether the repentance involved is genuine or not. And faith itself is easy to counterfeit, a faith that could even work miracles but not save the soul in the day of Jesus Christ. So, the outer things of godliness are easily imitated. Then, a second thing, there are lots of things which help a man to, delieve, to, to deceive himself. He is himself naturally disposed to be very partial. He's inclined to think well of himself rather than anything bad. And so there are so many things with the, with the flesh, with the failings and sins of true Christians and with the devil. It's easy for a man to fall asleep in carnal security, dreaming about heaven and never having his dream broke till he lifts up his eyes in hell. And then he says, I must add this point. I marvel not that so many are deceived when I see the careless way in which men deal with religion. When men have to deal with their estates, their business, they're very careful. They fee a lawyer, they, they pay a lawyer to go back over the title deeds, perhaps for two or three hundred years. In trade, they hurry here and there to attend to their commercial engagements. They wouldn't launch into speculations or run great risks. But the soul, the poor soul, how men play with that as with a toy and despise it as if it were worthless earth. Two or three minutes in the morning when they first roll out of bed, two or three odd minutes in the evening when they're nearly asleep, the fag ends of the day given to their souls and all the best part given to the body. And then the Sabbath, how carelessly spent by most. With what indifference do we listen to the word of God preached? An old song, heaven a trifle, hell almost a joke, eternity a notion and death a bugbear. Is it any wonder that people are deceived when we are so mad, so foolish, so insane as to trifle where we ought to be awfully 
in earnest. And so it's not surprising that there are false professors when it's relatively easy to pretend outwardly to be a Christian, when we're inclined to deceive ourselves, to think well of ourselves rather than anything else, and because so many of us deal so carelessly with religion. And now a third point, and again a pressing and solemn one, that this delusion may continue throughout life, even to the very last moment, and probably the first minutes of our life in the next world may be tinctured with the same delusion. He says that might sound strange, and yet some scriptures seem to hint as much. And again, he's back with the parable, the parable of the tares and the wheat, the parable of the draw net, the same, the uh, the bringing in of the... Uh, the great net and only when it's drawn in is it clear that some are good and some are bad so here are parables that speak of this distinction coming in but coming in only at the very last moment or again the, the king who made the supper and there were some who came in and thought all was well with them until it was discovered that they did not have on the wedding garment or the unprofitable servant the one who only realized right at the very end when he gave to his master what he thought was or imagined might see him safe. No, then, says Spurgeon, this is Christ's own language, and it gives us the most satisfactory and solemn cause to believe that the delusion of many may continue even to the last. It's a terrifying prospect, and it genuinely is. It's a gloomy thing, says Spurgeon, to hear a high professor, after all his boastings, compelled to condemn himself out of his own mouth, to say something like, I've been a hypocrite, I've sat at the Lord's table and drunk the cup of devils too, I was respected but not respectable, I was accepted among saints while I was a foul villain the whole time. Now, Spurgeon's point is that some of them are not inconsistent in their living but there's no real spiritual life. They have an outwardly quite seamless walk. And it's not, it's not so bad that anybody would say, I don't think you're really a Christian. But there's no care for souls. There's no love for Christ. There's no private prayer. There's no secret fellowship. And now at last, he says, they have no triumph and no comfort of the Spirit and are driven to the miserable shift of aping both. So that the very deathbed, there's this horrible sham that is being played out. It really is a, a quite fearful prospect, and it needs to be. The faithful preacher wants to make sure that he shakes us so that whatever is false may fall away, and only those things that are well-founded may remain. And he quotes again the fearful language of John Bunyan at the end of Pilgrim's Progress, the, the glorious dreamer sketching the end of the false professor. While I was gazing upon all these things, I turned my head to look back and saw that man Ignorance come up to the riverside. And he soon got over. He crossed over the river and he crossed over easily. He thought everything was well with him. And yet it happened that when he was in that place, this ferryman, vain hope, helped him over. And when he got to the, the top of the gate, when he was ready to go into the presence of the king as he thought, it was found by those at the gate that he had no certificate, no real evidence of having put his faith in Jesus Christ. And then 
And this is that fearful, chilling last sentence. I thought I saw that there was a way to hell, even from the gates of heaven, as well as from the city of destruction. So Spurgeon is saying that you may delude yourself all through life and even die thinking that things are well with your soul because of how easy it is to deceive oneself. And the next point then, that this delusion, even to the very last, may seem to have the most excellent arguments to support it. And again, he's going to demonstrate this from the word of God. He's not making this stuff up as he goes along. A man may be a deceiver and he may accomplish his task all the more readily because he can say, I have made and I have maintained a very respectable profession in the church. I do not know that I have ever tarnished my character. I believe I am looked upon by most people as a pattern and example. And Spurgeon says, yep, and that can be true. And you can still be lost. The five foolish virgins were virgins. They were with the other virgins. They had lamps. They didn't throw them away. Those lamps had burned for a long time. They had some oil. But there was a fatal blunder. They had not oil in the vessel, though they had oil in the lamp. Again, some may bring a very careful outward observance of religion as an excellent art argument and think the conclusion to be drawn from there to be very satisfactory. So, you know, we, we go to church, we, we've been baptised, we're at the Lord's table, we're always sitting in our places, everything is proper and right, and yet that very performance can help you to deceive yourself. You may conclude that you must be right because of all this, and yet the master may say, I never knew you. If means of grace could raise men to heaven, says Spurgeon, Capernaum would not have been cast down to hell. If attendance at the temple could save the soul, Caiaphas would be in glory. If hearing the word were enough, Herod would be in heaven. O oh, brothers, more than this you must have, or you will miss of everlasting life. So it is not what we do. It is not our performances. It is vital union with Christ by real faith, which shall be the point that decides the question of our eternal destiny. Our mighty works may be many, but if Christ says, I never knew you, you who practice lawlessness, we are lost. The more diligent in service the self-deceiver becomes, the more strong is the net in which his foot is taken. Every duty performed may be but another fetter to bind our souls if we be graceless professors. Oh, that I could awake you, you desperately bewitched and stupefied deceivers. And says Spurgeon, you can even argue from the righteousness of God that things are well with you when they are not. You may fetch your apologies for your hypocrisy from every holy thing. You can say, well, religion's very hard and God is very strict and severe. Nobody can carry it out as he should. Therefore, it will be well with me. Just like that servant who said, I knew you were a hard man. I knew you were unreasonable. I knew that you made life difficult for people. And so we go on, keeping our eyes fast shut till the flames of hell shall wake us up. These, these are fearful things. And again, they are meant to make us stop and ask, are things with my soul what they ought to be? And so to the last point, says Spurgeon, that this delusion may last through life and be sustained by many specious, that is, empty arguments, but it must all be dispelled. You will not go on 
dreaming this false dream forever. There will come a moment of truth. And he speaks now to four, well, three different classes, but one of those classes twice. The proud professor, the sinner, and the timid saint. So, professor, you will then, in that moment, be all alone. There will be no minister to comfort you, no deacons and church members to say you've maintained a good profession. When you stand before the great throne, you will have to look at your own acts, your own faith, your own life in the solemn privacy of eternity, and then you will give the right verdict if you do not now. Then your conscience will be awake. Then you will not be able to satisfy it with pretenses or promises. But if you are found out, it will gnaw you and bite you and devour you and vex you. God himself shall deal with you in that moment. Now, he says, it's only my poor voice. It's only my feeble utterance that goes to your heart today and you will forget it all. Or perhaps you do not feel it now. But when God deals with you, it will be another thing. Now, Spurgeon is not indulging some vindictive spirit here. He says, oh, if I were a Baxter, I would preach my sermon out in tears and weep over you, proud and high professors that will not search and examine yourselves whether you be in the faith. Now, again, Spurgeon's point is that this examination, if it's a good examination, it will only take away what is false but he says, you must consider this. You must make sure that things are well with your soul. And then he turns to sinners. A brief word to you. If the professor, if the righteous scarcely be saved, where will you appear? You're not even pretending to be a Christian. You drunkard, you swearer, you thief, whatever you may be, you, you, you harlot, you whoremonger. If you are not even pretending if the best living men need to search and try themselves, if many of them might be shut out, what must become of you if you do not come now to Jesus Christ? So he says, look, don't, don't just think that I'm speaking to the, the good people or the people who think themselves good. I'm talking to you also, because if those who can pretend to righteousness, if they're going to be exposed, what will come of you who are living openly in your sin? Then back to the timid Christians. And here's this pastoral concern. I have not preached this to alarm you. And you might say that's the point at which so many people in this congregation might have laughed out loud at him. Because if you are a timid Christian, and I think many of us who are Christians, we're timid. Boy, do we feel a sermon like this. This gets into our hearts. This feels like it's pulling down everything. This can make half a hundred of us think, well, if this is the case, can I ever really be confident? Says Spurgeon, let me bid you fly to Jesus again this morning. That's the point. Go to Christ. The problem with these proud professors is that they're not trusting in Jesus. Whatever it is they're trusting in, it's not him. Whatever veil they're drawing over the truth, whatever performance they're offering, whatever lie they're telling themselves, Christ still saves and if you have him, you have life. If there be all this ado, when we come to sift and try, would it not be better, says Spurgeon, for you and me to cling to the cross again with, just as I am, I trust thee, Jesus, I trust thee alone. 
For, oh, remember, none can perish that are clinging to the cross. So says Spurgeon, if you're troubled, if you're grieved, if this shakes you, go back to the unshakable one. Go back to the Saviour. Go back to the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Redeemer of the lost, the Saviour of all who call upon him, and you will be safe and happy. But because he's being faithful to Christ and to souls, Again, proud professors, the last word must still be for you. He won't let them go. He's like a dog with a bone. You may soar, I like Icarus, with wings of wax, but the higher you fly, the more terrible will be your fall. And what will become of you? Think of what has become of others like you now in hell. What would they give for your Sabbaths over again? What would they give to be here that they might hear one faithful sermon, that they might repent and escape from the wrath of God? Think, while you are here, how they are cursing themselves to think that they threw away the golden hour and lost the opportunity. How they gnaw their tongues while they say, I came from the table of God to the place of fiends. I came from the pulpit into hell. I descended from Mount Zion to the very depths of Hades. I was brought from Jerusalem to Tophet. And this is to be thy lot, proud professor, except you repent. What do you say then, O man? Are you willing to make your bed in hell after having talked of leaning your head on Jesus' bosom? What, will you dwell with everlasting burnings, having sung of everlasting love? What, must you be driven from his presence when you've boasted of being justified by his righteousness and washed in his blood? It must be so, Professor, it must be so, unless God help thee to make true work and real work and sure work of it by the Holy Ghost. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. For he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. I can't imagine. Well, I wish I couldn't imagine that anybody could hear that sermon and shrug it off and go, well, I'm all right. And yet we do. So often... I hope so-and-so was listening to that. I hope Mrs. Green was paying attention. I hope Mr. Brown was listening. I hope someone else was thinking hard about those things. My friends, we need to think hard about these things. We need to make sure things are well with our souls through the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ. But when they are, we can say, come what may, I am his and he is mine. We fly to Christ and there we are safe and sound, secure for time and for eternity. But let us not pretend. Let us not go through the motions. Let us not go on deluding ourselves. That is Spurgeon's great concern in this sermon, and he's determined to make sure that he roots out every hypocrite, everybody who's ignorant, everybody who's self-deluding from whatever refuge they might find, and he points them back to the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, may God help us to do those very things. May God help us in his mercy to show us what is right and what is pleasing in his sight and bring us to Christ. Next week, God willing, we'll be uh, back again uh, and we're looking at at page at sermon 483 on the life and walk of faith. And again, let me say, if, if this has left you troubled, and distressed do go and speak to your own pastor there are other sermons by Spurgeon 
that have a different tone, intent, direction and emphasis. Keep reading, keep reading and above all things, cry out to, close with and keep close to Jesus Christ. There is our confidence. There is our peace. Run to him if you've never run before. Run to him again if you've run in the past. Hold fast to him. He is our salvation. I hope you'll come again and I hope you'll listen again to this man as he preaches to us the unsearchable riches of Christ and the need to make sure that we are his and that he is ours. Thank you and take care. Thank you for listening. I'm Jeremy Walker and From the Heart of Spurgeon is a podcast from Media Gratii. For more resources like this, including a biographical film of Spurgeon's life and labours, visit mediagratii.org.